following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn your Bibles to Daniel. Uh, we'll be in Daniel chapter 2 tonight. You may remember that two weeks ago, Dr. Light preached to us from Daniel chapter 1, highlighting how Daniel was willing to trust not in the provisions of the king, but rather in the provision of his God and his Savior. And it was the courage and humility of Daniel to uh, request trusting not in the, the rich, wealthy provisions of the court but rather to rest uh, upon his God uh, that highlighted chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, though, we did read that uh, Daniel, having been given wisdom and ability in interpreting dreams, was found to be ten times wiser than any other uh, enchanter or Chaldean or magician in Babylon. And it's really uh, this that provides the tie-in to chapter 2 as we address dreams and uh, come to really a court contest, if you will, between Daniel and and the Babylonian magicians. We'll read uh, verses 1 through 30. I'm going to skip a brief portion in the middle here, but if you'd read along with me, starting in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. But the king answered and said to them, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But... If you show the dream in its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream in its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. But the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh." We'll skip down uh, for the next five verses. The king orders the destruction of all the wise men in Babylon, and Daniel and his friends are included in this. Uh, Daniel asks permission to take some time to come before the king, and we'll pick up in verse 17 then. Then Daniel went to the house, uh, his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. 
so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those with understanding. He reveals deep things and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might, and have made known to me what we have asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. So the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story, a story that is of your people and of your mercy on your people, revealing mysteries and in so doing, showing your greatness, your glory, and your mercy. We pray that you would enable our hearts to praise you tonight. We pray this in your name. Amen. We think about dreams. Dreams are certainly a common experience for all of us. I remember uh, growing up, my chief goal in life uh, was to become a baseball player and to play in the major leagues, naturally enough. I would spend uh, most of my afternoons practicing baseball, hitting baseballs off the tee, playing baseball with my friends, and thinking about baseball. I remember one particular night I decided, well, I'm not in the major leagues, but the closest you can get to a real experience is a dream, so I'm going to fall asleep trying to have a dream about playing major league baseball. And I thought, well, if I go to sleep thinking about this enough, maybe I can get myself to have a dream about being in the major leagues. So I remember going to sleep, and I'm sort of envisioning in my mind what's going to happen in this dream, trying to trick my mind into it. And I fell asleep eventually, and I did not have a dream about playing baseball. I remember having a pretty realistic dream about being a trash collector. And it was a little less glorious than what I'd hoped. Um, but we all experience the power of dreams. And I think we can all relate to having a dream and waking up and having that dream be so real that it almost takes us a minute to orient ourselves back to reality. Just this past week, I remember having one particular dream that was not a good dream. And all, all day long the following day, I'd sort of have panic attacks that, that what had occurred in my dream was reality, and I had to remind myself, no, that was just a dream. But in the ancient world, there were dreams that were not just dreams. In fact, uh, in the ancient Mesopotamian area, uh, to have dreams that would require interpretation, and in fact, to have dreams that were interpreted accurately was not unheard of. 
Um, there, uh, for instance, the Greek historian Herodotus uh, chronicles a number of dreams that occurred to some of the same kings that are mentioned here in Daniel, as well as their predecessors, uh, along with the interpretations that ended up working out in, in certain ways. And uh, there were certain patterns in dreams that these uh, Babylonians would look for, and uh, they would say, okay, this dream is going to foretell something about the future. And so it really should come as no surprise uh, to someone who has read from the ancient world that chapter 2 would start with this phrase, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled. This was a very regular occurrence in the ancient uh, Middle East area. So we read that they have dreams, and what you would do when you had a dream that troubled you is you would call your magicians and sorcerers and enchanters, and, and they would interpret the dream. You would tell them the dream, and they would have certain books and certain resources that they would consult for the interpretation. In fact, it was exactly this that Daniel had been studying back in chapter 1. We read in, in verse 4 and then, and then later again in verse 17 that in the literature, and the language, the skills, the practices of these Chaldeans is what Daniel was being trained in. So Daniel, along with the others, is learning both the, the literature and as well as the language, but also the skills uh, of these wise men such that by the end of, of chapter 1, Daniel is ten times wiser than the other wise men and magicians uh, in Babylon. So it's these very men that Daniel had been trained to be a part of uh, in chapter 1. Anyone familiar with the court would have been very familiar with this scene. It would be something today like a CEO calling his accountant and saying, hey, I need some numbers for, for a particular account. And the accountant would respond, sure, tell me which account and I'll give you the numbers. And that's exactly how these magicians and enchanters would work. The king would say, I had a dream. They would say, great, tell us the dream and we'll consult our resources and give you the interpretation of the dream. But these uh, normal proceedings get a little bit alarming for these magicians and uh, and enchanters pretty quickly here in chapter 2. Because the king, rather than telling the dream, says, actually, no, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You need to tell me the dream. Now, this would have been crazy in the ancient world. This, this would have been uh, much like a scenario we could imagine today in, in a, a typical office building. I could imagine the CEO of Amazon calling in his accountant and saying, hey, I, I need some profit and loss numbers for a product that we sell on Amazon. And you can imagine the accountant saying, okay, which product? And the CEO would respond, no, 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 I don't think you get it. I don't think you're doing your job very well. So you're going to tell me which product I need the numbers for and give me the numbers, and then you can keep your job. Well, the accountant uh, undoubtedly would say something about, you know, guessing games not being a part of his job description, I would think. And that's exactly what the situation would have been for these magicians and enchanters. This scenario was unheard of. And they say this in, in, uh, later in the chapter. They say, uh, this, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. No king has ever asked such a thing from his magicians and enchanters. This is something unheard of in the regular court practice of interpreting dreams. For some reason, the king all of the sudden seems to have called into doubt the legitimacy of these interpreters. Now, that may seem a little bit funny to us. If someone came to me and said, hey, I will be happy to interpret your dreams for you, I think this would be my first thought. If you can tell me my dream, maybe I'll go ahead and let you interpret it. But we would question it right off the bat. Not so in the ancient world. Um, the, the, these enchanters are rightly um, 
saying this is something no man can do and is completely unheard of. Of course, the king does offer a pretty nice reward uh, if they are able to do this, but for these uh, enchanters, the reward is kind of a moot point uh, at this point in the narrative. I think the, uh, the magicians do demonstrate uh, the extent of their true wisdom by verse 11, though, as the, as the dialogue goes on and, and the king is demanding the dream and, and its interpretation. In verse 11, the uh, magicians respond, there is not a thing, uh, this thing is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with man. And, and they're exactly right, that only a god would be able to do what the king is asking them uh, to do. The fault here is, is not so much with the magicians as the system that has been set up in the Babylonian court that would expect an interpretation uh, of these dreams. So we come to uh, the end of these first uh, 11 or 12 verses, and the king has determined to slaughter all of the magicians, enchanters, and Chaldeans for their inability to tell him his dream. And Daniel is caught up in this command. He also is a wise man, of Babylon, he would have been a, a part of this group of, of wise, men's, uh, wise men, enchanters, and Chaldeans. Um, although it does not appear that he was there uh, in the court at the time, he was part of the group and therefore uh, part of, of those issued uh, the decree of death. It might be, well, as I was looking at this passage, it seemed odd to me if Daniel was uh, considered in chapter 1 to be ten times wiser than any other wise men or magician in Babylon, why wasn't he the one called to interpret this dream? If he's the one that's ten times wiser, what's he doing back at his house? And the other guys are, are there trying to interpret the dream. I think it's worth noting, and a careful reader, you may have picked up on this or, or wondered about this as we started, but in verse 1, we're told that this is the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. Back in chapter 1, uh, we were told, actually, that the training program that Daniel is a part of was a three-year training program. How is it that a three-year training program in this story is taking place two years in Nebuchadnezzar's reign? Most commentators think that this is occurring when Daniel is still in his training period, or some would say that the three years is covering parts of three calendar years, but less than two full years. I think the first explanation is a better explanation, that this is happening while Daniel's still in his period of training. That's why Daniel wasn't there. Um, but Daniel, as uh, a, a trainee of the wise men, is still caught up in the um, execution order. Despite being young, however, probably around or less than 20 years old, if he's still in his training period, despite his youth, we read in Daniel 2, chapter, uh, or in, the, in the verses that we skipped over, that Daniel responded to the king and his officers with prudence and with discretion. And with wisdom, Daniel asks for time so that he might reveal to the king what he asked. As we turn and look at Daniel's role here in the second half of this story, as we see him both respond with humility and grace and wisdom and discretion to the Babylonians, and as we see him also turn to God in prayer with humility, I want to highlight three particular things that I think this text shows us in the character and actions of Daniel. So let's look, um, focusing particularly from verse 17 on, the first thing that this text emphasizes over and over and over is that God is the one who proclaims mysteries. Right from the start, even the Babylonian magicians acknowledge the need for this. Only the gods, they say, could reveal what the king asks. It's interesting that even the Babylonians would acknowledge this point. For the Babylonians, though, there's a problem. If the gods are needed, for the Babylonians, the gods don't dwell with men. 
The gods don't communicate with men. But when we come to Daniel, Daniel has a different perspective. Because Daniel's God is not the gods of the Babylonians. Daniel's God is Yahweh, a God who covenants with his people, who speaks to his people, who reveals himself to his people, who rescues his people, who saves his people. Yahweh is a different kind of God than the gods of the Babylonians. And so Daniel, right from the start, knows that there is a God who reveals mysteries. And so when Daniel goes back to his friends, he is turning to a God who he can trust. It's worth noting in uh, verse, or chapter 1, verse 17, um, back in, in the first chapter, that God had given Daniel skill, wisdom, and ability in understanding visions and dreams. So Daniel comes to this having already some familiarity with or knowledge that God has given him an ability in dreams. Of course, in, in chapter 2, if we might think, well, if Daniel's been given an ability to interpret dreams, why doesn't Daniel just stand up and interpret it? He, he's given this ability. But I think it's so telling to see that Daniel's ability to interpret dreams does not mean that he has all of the skill in himself, that he's now self-reliant, or that he can do it on his own. Daniel's first action is to run to the God who reveals mysteries. Even though God's given him this ability, he's still dependent upon God to reveal the mystery to him. As we look at the story here, it is incredible to me how faithfully and how repeatedly Daniel points back to God as the one who reveals this mystery. I don't know about you, but I know if it was me, and, and, and I was in Daniel's shoes, and, and God had revealed this dream and its interpretation to me, I think I would run to King Nebuchadnezzar and say, um, excuse me, King, uh, I can interpret your dream. Or maybe if I was feeling particularly conscious and, and humble, I would say, God revealed to me the dream so I can interpret it for you, King. In either way, I'm still claiming to be able to offer this interpretation here. But if you look at Daniel... When Daniel appears before the king in verses uh, 26 and following at the end of the chapter here, the king says, are you able to reveal the dream to me in its interpretation? And what does Daniel say? No, I'm not. At this point, if I'm King Nebuchadnezzar, I'm either confused or enraged or uh, furious. I just asked you to tell me the dream and you said you can't. But Daniel is using that as a foil to reveal the key truth here. No, king, I cannot reveal it to you. No wise man can. But there is a God in heaven who does reveal mysteries. There is a God. And this God does reveal mysteries. What's more, O King, the same God has revealed to you what he's going to do in the latter days. What's interesting about Daniel's response at the end of the chapter here is he emphasizes that God has been gracious not only to him in revealing the interpretation of the dream, but Daniel emphasizes that God has been gracious to Nebuchadnezzar as well in revealing this dream. To you, O king, God has chosen to reveal what is going to happen in the latter days. Daniel emphasizes that even the dream itself is a revelation from God. And so Daniel and his friends and the wise men and even Nebuchadnezzar are all depending upon the gracious revelation of God in this story. There is no one in this story, not even King Nebuchadnezzar himself, who is outside of the necessity of God's revelation for understanding and wisdom. Daniel is so faithful to point back to God. I think if we want to look at this text and its application for you and I, 
if Daniel is humbled by the fact that God would reveal to him this mysterious dream, we ought to be all the more in awe of our God who has proclaimed to us mysteries as well. See, if we turn over to the New Testament, Paul repeatedly emphasizes in the New Testament that God has revealed the greatest mystery in Christ Jesus. Paul says that the gospel is a mystery hidden for ages and generations, which God has revealed in Christ. The gospel of Christ is nothing less than a mystery that God has revealed for us. Now, that might seem a a little bit counterintuitive. After all, for those of us who have grown up in the church, we're very accustomed to hearing about Jesus. We hear about Jesus every Sunday, maybe three times. You've seen Jesus on flannel boards since second grade Sunday school. How mysterious is that? But we need to be recalled again to the fact that this Jesus, who we hear proclaimed again and again, is the greatest revelation of the greatest mystery of an infinitely great God who has revealed to us the truth of salvation in his Son. The appearance of Christ is nothing less than the revelation of God's plan to take rebellious, sinful people who have rejected him and die for them, that he could unite us again to himself through Jesus. That is a mystery beyond any dream, beyond comprehension. And our God is the God who reveals mysteries, including the mystery of Christ. See, if Daniel's humbled to receive the interpretation of a dream, we have to be blown away by the fact that God, the incredible, the majestic, the awesome God, would reveal himself to us in Jesus Christ and to do so in a way that leads to our salvation. If we think it might be really cool to receive this vision in the night and an interpretation of the vision in the night, how much more profound to have our lives changed by the actual, physical, real appearing of God on earth to draw our gaze and to draw our imaginations, to draw our sights, our affections, our desires to himself and a suffering and rising Savior. That is a profound mystery that is revealed concretely in Christ Jesus. So first off, this text over and over again through Daniel reminds us that God is the one who proclaims mysteries. He proclaims dreams and he has proclaimed the greatest mystery in Christ Jesus coming to save us. Well, while Daniel draws attention to God as the mystery-proclaiming God, the second thing we can notice from this story is that prayer is the means by which Daniel and his friends seek the wisdom and mercy they receive from God. When Arioch, the king's guard, arrives to carry out this execution order, Daniel asks for time to make known the interpretation, and he immediately returns to his friends to pray. Now, if you think about it, For Daniel to say to this captain of the guard, name a time and I'll come before the king, that seems to demonstrate a pretty incredible trust in God. In fact, it might almost seem presumptuous for for Daniel to say, don't worry, name a time and I'll come before the king. It seems like Daniel's presuming on God's revelation here. But this isn't the case. Daniel is completely and fully dependent upon his God here. There is nothing in Daniel's statements that is holding God accountable or calling God to task. Daniel, through his prayer, is completely dependent upon his trust in God. In fact, 
um, Daniel, rather than being presumptuous, may be relying upon the very promises that God has given to his people. You may remember that when Solomon dedicated the temple back in 1 Kings, in Solomon's prayer of dedication, he prays that if Israel sins and is taken captive to a foreign land, he prays that God would hear his people and have mercy on them when they turn to him in prayer. And so as Daniel and his friends immediately gather for prayer to seek the mercy of their God, they're doing nothing less than recalling the prayer of Solomon and the promise of God to be with his people as they turn to him. Now, if we think about prayer, I think the discipline of prayer ought to be a grace that we seek and pursue more eagerly than any other grace that has been given to us. Just think about what prayer is and what the promise of prayer is. It is the promise of communing with a God who hears. It's a promise of God saying that if we will call upon us, he will respond. It is a promise to grant wisdom and guidance. It is a promise to draw near to God through Christ. It is a promise to answer what we ask in faith. These are the promises that God attaches to prayer, to be with us, to draw near us, to give wisdom and guidance. To, uh, to, to meet the requests that are brought with faith, to commune with God himself. If this is what prayer is, we ought to be eager to seek the grace of prayer. And yet, ironically, I don't think I've ever met a Christian, myself most definitely included, who does not say that he struggles with the discipline of prayer. What Christian do you know says, yes, my prayer life is everything that it should be. My discipline of prayer is as diligent as it ought to be. I know mine isn't, and I don't think I've talked to a Christian who is. Why is it that this grace, which is so significant to us, is one that we struggle with so mightily? Well, I don't know why other than our own sinfulness, but I think there are two things that Daniel's pattern of prayer demonstrate for us here that are worth us following. First of all, note that Daniel's first recourse when in trouble is to run to God in prayer. Prayer, as such, becomes an evidence of how deep our trust in our God is. When we face trouble, when we lack wisdom, when we're anxious about something, when we're suffering, when we're going through something we don't understand, when we need guidance, when we're trapped by sin, when we're racked by guilt, how do we attempt to solve our problem? Maybe we brainstorm for options. Maybe we... Uh, pick one thing and try it really hard and see if it works. Maybe we phone a friend and tell the whole life story of the problem for a couple of hours and, and hope that that solves the problem. Maybe we post it on Facebook. Any ideas to help me with blank? How do we approach our problems? Is our first recourse to run to God in prayer? The amount of time that we spend in prayer and our quickness to run to God in prayer is an indication of how much we trust our God and of how much we are depending upon his wisdom and guidance to guide us through our situation rather than our own wisdom and guidance. Prayer is a measuring stick. And I know for me that my lack of prayer too often is an evidence of my habit of thinking or at least trying to solve the problem on my own way and in my own strength. Many of you probably saw on the news two weeks ago the story of Atlanta's snowstorm that froze vehicles up and down highways for for miles 
and left people scattering and setting out on their own, abandoning their vehicles to try to find shelter and warmth. There are a number of stories that have come out of this uh, frozen traffic jam uh, in Atlanta. And there are some people who were, were able to find their way to a hotel room several miles away, abandoning their car, which was then stolen, uh, once things thawed out. There are stories of uh, National Guardsmen who were able to bring food and water to people trapped in their cars. There was uh, one story of a couple who was uh, on their way to the hospital to deliver a baby. Well, the baby didn't stop coming, and the traffic did stop going. So one trooper was surprised to find his duties that day were helping deliver a baby in the back seat of a car along the Atlanta interstate. Now, whatever the situation of these various stories were, while some were able to try to sort of set out on their own, for many, there was no option. You can't turn around. You can't keep going. You can't set off on your own when you're miles from anything and you have children in the car. The only option for these people was to sit and wait for aid to come to them. Now, the reality is that many times in our lives, that's exactly where we are. Our options are not, let's see how many things we can do or how how can we set up to solve this problem. Our options are to sit and wait in dependency upon our God for his aid to come to us. And prayer is the expression of that trust in that God. One commentator put it this way. He said, trusting in God alone is never comfortable for us. It means we have nowhere else to turn. Yet who could be better to turn to in a time of trial? Who is like the Lord as a helper and a deliverer? Daniel reminds us that our quickness and diligence to run to God in prayer is an expression of and an indicator of the depth of our trust in our God. Second, Daniel's prayer reminds us that God does indeed hear and answer prayer. Maybe you're uh, at times doubting whether prayer is really all that effective. Maybe you express uh, your thoughts similar to a student of mine who once said, praying is really hard because I don't really know what to say and it seems like I'm talking to myself. I think a lot of times prayer seems like that. Is God answering? Is God really listening? Do we have confidence that this talking, this praying that we do is really effective. I think if we're honest, all of us may have had doubts about that or, or wondered that about that. But in this chapter, we're reminded that we worship a God who does hear and who does answer. In verse uh, 19, we read, after Daniel and his friends are praying, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision in the night. We're told throughout scripture, both the necessity of prayer and the effectiveness of prayer. Paul urges us to pray continually in 1 Thessalonians. We're told to take everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to our God in Philippians chapter 4. In Matthew 21, Jesus tells us that whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, that verse, of course, would take a sermon on its own to dissect everything with it. But the point is that the Bible repeatedly urges us to prayer and tells us that prayer is effective. In fact, we're told that prayer is one of the means that God has ordained to work out his will. And we're told that the prayer of a righteous man is effective. Daniel's prayer reminds us also that prayer is a means to God's will being done. It is a call for us to pray, to pray continually, to pray in faith, to pray in the knowledge that God is with us. So watch God work his will in you, with you, and around you as we come to him in prayer. 
God proclaims mysteries. Daniel runs to God in prayer. Finally and very briefly, just note Daniel's response to God, which is to praise him. To praise him for his wisdom, his power, and his revelation. When God reveals the mystery to Daniel, Daniel prays and blesses God. And just let the words of this blessing sink into your minds and hearts for a minute. Blessed be the name of God, God who dwells forever and ever. He is the one who holds all wisdom, who wields all might. The times and the seasons, even apparently our winter, are controlled by him. The great Nebuchadnezzar who threatened Daniel with death is nothing, for all kings are removed and set up by God. Any wisdom and understanding that any human has comes from God the giver of wisdom and knowledge. God knows the deep things. God has light itself dwelling with him. Daniel's praise magnifies and declares the wonders of the character of our God in this prayer. But then Daniel not only praised the character of God, he praises the fact that God works on his behalf. In the second half of this prayer, he reminds us that this is not a random act of God. This is an act of the covenanting God who has spoken to Daniel's fathers. He is Yahweh. He says, I give thanks to you, O God of my fathers. This is the God who is in covenant with his people, acting on their behalf. And Daniel gives thanks to him, both as the covenanting God of his people and also for this specific act of revealing the mystery and the truth of this dream. God has now given Daniel wisdom. He's condescended to give Daniel what he asked, making known to him the king's matter answering his prayer, and therefore saving his life. God is infinitely great and glorious, and this infinitely great God has acted on Daniel's behalf. And for all of this, Daniel praises God, magnifying his goodness and giving him the glory. But aren't we in exactly the same place? When we think that God has declared to us mysteries in Christ Jesus, we know now that the infinitely glorious and great God has come and has acted on our behalf, answering the prayers of his people, rescuing us and bringing us salvation. And so our lives, just like Daniel's, ought to abound with praise and thanksgiving for the character of our God and the salvation of our God. So God proclaims mysteries. Daniel responds in prayer. And then he overflows with praise to his God. In the end, the story reminds us repeatedly that what we need is a God who will dwell with men a God who will dwell and give wisdom and reveal mysteries that will save our lives. Yahweh is the covenant God who did this for Daniel, and he does this now for us in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus who, according to Paul, has become for us our wisdom in God. We can conclude in the same way that Daniel does, by singing a chorus of praise. O worship our King, all glorious above, gratefully seeing God's power in his love. And that's how we're going to conclude tonight. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing. Oh God, oh God who is beyond our praising, who is infinitely great and glorious, may our hearts abound with praise for you have revealed mysteries, including the great mystery of Christ Jesus. You are worth the trust and dependence that prayer ought to express in our lives. We ask that you would work that in our hearts. May we praise you now, this week, and forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.